Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran Kansas City jazz musician and educator Brian Hicks. He was introduced to music in high school, where he played cello, bass, and sang. After only one year of college as a cello major, he became a full-time professional at the age of 20. He started his career with the Inner City Orchestra. Over the years, he's gone on to play with the likes of Fats Dennis, Rich Hill, Ben Kennard, and the great Ida Macbeth. He helped co-found the Great Malachi Papers, an avant-garde jazz rock ensemble and he toured France twice with the band. Brian had some time in New York City and played with the great Joe Farnsworth, Doc Cheatham, and so many others. We get into his decades of Kansas City history, life and music, the future, and so much more. Enjoy. Hey, how you doing? What's up? How you doing today? Oh, not bad at all. It's great yeah. to meet you. Thank you for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz today. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. So before we get into your life, and work, and Kansas City, and everything that goes into who you are as a local musician. I want to know, you know, we went through quite a thing with COVID the last three years, and it did its own thing on all of us, especially the jazz community. How did you survive it, and how has it changed the way that you do things now? Well, um, my experience with COVID was... uh, Oh, but you know, besides the usual, you know, the the you know accompanying paranoia and you know fear and you know just the complete disruption of everything. I mean, I you know it was like I was I was working a whole lot uh, before it came on. You know, I had about nine you know steadies a month. You know, and then felt you know, and then the stuff that would just pop up. You know, and my I had students, and you know I was doing pretty well. Uh, you know, felt good. I was it was comfortable. I wasn't wasn't working. Uh, you know, I was working enough to make ends meet. And then you know suddenly, no work whatsoever. And uh, you know, I started doing a couple of live some live stream things with of uh, a, a few people. You know, discovered that, and I I thought, well, you know, maybe this will be you know profitable, but that that didn't wouldn't uh, you know it it that quickly tapered off. You know, the amount of money that we you know that people were willing to send on Venmo and stuff, you know, for live streaming, and of course, we kind of learned a new skill, you know, as far as uh, how to use the. Uh, the phone, <laughs> my, my cell phone. <laughs> but within about three weeks of everything shutting down, now this is just this was me, you know, personally. I I suddenly started having health issues. I I, I got to a place. Uh, I mean, I you know, all of a sudden I I couldn't breathe. I was running out of breath real quick, and and it. Uh, it wasn't like COVID symptoms. It was it was something else, and the the you know, uh, you know we were told to stay out of emergency rooms, you know, and, and things like that. And I and I I wasn't insured at the time, and you know I did I didn't know what to do. I just I I, I thought I was gonna die. Uh, I was you know I would wake up from a sound sleep and. And literally, and I use the word literally, literally, 
couldn't breathe. Um, you know, and I'd have to sit up and, and, uh, and just, you know, wait for my breath to come back. And, you know, I, I went on like that for about two months, you know, the, um, April and most of May. And then I, uh, I finally, uh, my, my feet and legs started swelling and I, I went to the clinic finally, you know, things had kind of, kind of slowed down with the COVID thing. The panic was sort of subsiding, you know, they were starting to figure things out. And I went to the clinic and got some tests done. Uh, they gave me a diuretic for the fluid and, uh, took some blood, did some blood work. And I went back five days later. They told me I had congestive heart failure and AFib and that I needed to check into the, you know, into the emergency room. So I went down to Truman, uh, that day. And, and then five days later, I, I had medication and everything. And, I'd lost about 25 pounds of fluid and, and I was feeling better than I'd felt in 10 years. And, and so, you know, and this is in the midst of COVID, but at that point I was just, God, I felt lucky to be alive, you know? And so the whole COVID thing, then it just became a thing, you know, <laughs> at that point I knew I was, you know, I mean, I wasn't working, but I sort of felt like, well, I can get through this. And, um, and, and it was like a new lease on life for me. So, you know, um, that was the big overarching thing that, that this past three years has, has been for me. COVID hasn't affected me as much as my heart condition, you know, and, and it's what it's, what the, the long and short of it is, it, it's made me real grateful. It's made me real, uh, you know, just feel real lucky to be alive. Wow, that's a magnanimous COVID story for sure. Um, you know, I'm curious how this jazz journey began for you, this music journey of yours. Tell me where you were born and raised and what was the alpha of this music life for you? Well, I was, you know, I was, uh, I'm the youngest of five kids, uh, was born in, Denver. My dad was working at a, a, a container factory, and then we moved to a small town and out a little farm outside of uh, Bourbon, Missouri. And then, when it was time for me to go to school, start school, we had moved to Kansas City, Kansas. And so uh, that's where I grew up was Kansas City, Kansas, uh, Western Wyandotte County. And uh, just you know, just had a normal. Um, you know, grade school years when got into junior high and I had started playing guitar and uh, I, I, I liked, uh, you know, I, uh, certain music kind of uh, started appealing to me. I, I, I did like, you know, like blues. I, I, I came to like uh, kind of acoustic blues and stuff and, and, uh, and all, you know, a lot, a lot of the rock and roll that was happening at the time, but I, I was more into the quiet stuff. I played acoustic guitar and, and, uh, my dad and I used to, you know, when, after I learned, a few, you know, a few, uh, how to play enough chords to play some songs, we would sit in my bedroom and go through this country and Western song book that I had and, and sing harmonies and stuff. And, and, uh, and then my sister, 
met this guy who became my brother-in-law, you know, later on. But he he was from New York, and he was he he had real eclectic musical tastes, and he introduced me to uh, oh, like uh, oh, the Drifters. You know, and a lot of a lot of these bands that he had grown up with, and then they also had like, you know, Joni Mitchell and uh, uh, Dave Van Ronk. I remember Dave Van Ronk and uh, um, Fred Neal, the guy that wrote "Everybody's Talking at Me." You know, and I recognized that song from Midnight Cowboy, but you know, I the I make I sort of made the connection between, you know, here's the guy who wrote the song, and that's the you know, that's the big production number of the song, you know, from the movie. And, you know, that, that you know, there was a source for this material. And, you know, the, uh, there are people, you know, you know, in all facets of music creating things. And, and, and then now his, now, so his name was Kenny Ricker and uh, is Kenny Ricker. And he, he had a brother named Bruce Ricker who, He's the guy who made the movie Last of the Blue Devils about Kansas City Jazz. Uh, you know, it was all down at the foundation. And I, I met Bruce during this time, and he he knew that I was into music, and he he took me over to his record collection, and he picked out about 20 records, and they were all jazz records. And he loaned them to me and, and said, Look, go listen to these. And then bring them back, and I'll give you some more. And he, you know, he kind of knew what kind of stuff I was into, and he picked out a bunch of things that. What I remember uh, was uh, uh, some Jimmy Smith and Kenny Burrell stuff. And Kenny Burrell really grabbed me because I was I, I liked blues, but I'd never heard blues guitar played like that with passing chords and you know it was there was a certain sophistication to it uh that i had, that i was not familiar with and i just you know it was something i, ju- I just said that I, I'd, I'd like to do that i want i want to be able to do that i didn't understand it at all and what i really didn't understand man you know i'm about 14 15 years old and uh, he gave me a Charlie Parker record, and and you know I just I had never heard anything like that. It was, you know, bebop was just completely unfamiliar to me, and so it just it was uh, completely foreign to me. But I knew that it was quality stuff. I knew that it was good, and that I should should uh, you know, uh, I it was an acquired taste, you know, that I just had to get used to. And, and, uh, you know, and I knew that at the time I knew that I was, I'd have to familiarize myself with this. So, so, you know, at that point I had aspirations to be a better player. Uh, and I wasn't quite sure how to do it, but I knew that I'd, I'd have to, you know, dive into this world and, and figure it out. So, um, yeah, you know that's what got me into jazz, and and then I started going to the foundation, the musicians' foundation. Uh, uh, way, and I was way younger than I should have been. I, you know, I I shouldn't have been there, uh, but I was, and and I'm, you know, I remember hearing Sonny Kenner and uh, um, Daoud Williams, and uh, you know, I, saw, I mean, I saw Jay McShann. I met Jay McShann, and you know, I was in the room with all these first and second wave 
uh, jazz players down at the foundation, guys that had played with, with McShann and, I mean, guys that had played with Harlan Leonard's Rockets, you know, I didn't know who these people were at the time, but, uh, you know, I, I was just taken by the whole, that whole world. I mean, there were people my dad's age, my parents' age and, and older, you know, uh, you know, just groove into this stuff. I remember, I remember there was a guy named Herman Walter. I remember the first time I saw him and he walked into the foundation and he's, you know, they're playing and he's like the, the dancing man, you know, and it was just, uh, it was just so cool. And, uh, so the, the whole, uh, vibe hit me and, you know, and it just, uh, captivated me. So, so who were early mentors for you? You know, you were obviously around a heavy, heavy amount of players that had a lot of history. Kansas City's dripping with history. Who were some of the early mentors that really kind of got you into the groove and got your first gigs in Kansas City? Well, you know, uh, I'll tell you somebody on, you know, that I'm, and I, and I'm still very much uh, associated with, uh, you know, I mean, we're really close friends. But um, uh, Rich Hill was was a guy that you know i i remember meeting because he was friends with my brother-in-law and rich hill and uh sam johnson and horace washington and sonny kenner played at my sister's wedding and uh you know those guys uh you know i mean to to actually be close to a, a quartet like that um they 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 were very you know you know I, I was soaking it all in, and uh, you know, like a few years later, when I came, when I came, I, you know, I went to college for about a year, um, and you know, dropped out. I uh, I drank most you know, my way through that year, but um, you know, so I dropped out, and then I hitchhiked back to Kansas City, and uh, I ran into Rich. You know, he was one of the first people that I um, made contact with. And the first gig that I played, Rich hired me for you know to play guitar on a gig. I hadn't even really started playing bass by this time. At, at this time, um, Rich hired me to play guitar on a gig up in Liberty, and and the saxophone player, the Fats Dennis, man. I mean, uh, you know, who had played with McShann, and um, you know, he he was a big influence on me because I I, had, I later, you know, about a year later, I, got, I started playing with the Inner City Orchestra. And Fats was part of that. And Fats came from, you know, it was, uh, from a family that was the Dennis brothers, man. I mean, Fats on, played saxophone, Hurley on guitar, and Rudy played piano. I mean, they were, you know, a deep musical family. And, uh, you know, so, and Horace was the leader, you know, he had played with, uh, in the group at my sister's wedding, but he was, he was con- leading the inner city orchestra, so he's the guy who hired me. And Sam Johnson was the drummer, so you know that whole group that I had been so impressed by, you know, what four four years earlier, uh, you know, all of a sudden I'm playing with all these guys, and uh, that was cool. You know, and I still play with, you know, I used to hang around in the River Key when I was uh, about fifteen. My sister lived down there, and and I'd, you know, I'd stand outside of clubs and listen to bands and. You know, there was a group, uh, uh, Stone Face was, was a band that used to play at a place called Ebenezer's. And I remember really digging them. And, 
and then later on, you know, and I mean, even now, I'm, I'm, I play with guys that played in Stoneface. You know, um, you know, guy Gary Cardelli, a percussionist, and uh, Jack Lightfoot. Uh, you know, Gary Nelson, a guitarist. Uh, it's a, it's a cool, cool world. The music world is, you know, neat. If you're, if you're into certain things, you know, I mean, you're just gonna, you're gonna bump into, you know, like-minded people. Uh, you know, it's that way all over the world in whatever interest you have. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm into music, so, you know, I just I run into musicians. And, I, you know, that's happened all my, all my life, you know, in various places. I I was in, I lived in, lived in Paris for about a year, and I, I went back to do some gigs. And uh, I went into a club, <clears throat> went went into this place and there was a guy Hal Singer was playing this tenor player and he was he was getting up there by that by this time but he'd been an expatriate for oh, 40 years or so was living in Paris and he had played with Jay McShann and uh I came back here and uh, I, I you know I met him and he you know we told him I was from Kansas City and we talked about people that we knew both that both of us knew and and I played, ended up playing with Jay McShann like the last, it was probably the last time he ever played because he, he passed away right after this. And uh, he he was walking out to his car. Janie, his, his daughter, was walking him out. And I, I stopped him. I said, Jay, I, I ran into a friend of yours in Paris. And Jay was kind of, you know, he was getting up there and he was tired. And I said, Hal Singer's told me to tell you hi and uh and man jay's eyes lit up and he goes how fair he goes strong player that was all he said <laughs> it, was just, it was so cool awesome. you know? yeah it was just it was wonderful and i've in and i've you know since i've i've searched on youtube for you know recordings of various things i'm always looking on youtube and, and i've found you know there are some recordings of of Jay and Hal Singer and Cleanhead Vincent, who I also played with, you know, I mean, there's an honor. And I, I did a gig with Cleanhead, uh, you know, playing at some festival in Par in in France, you know, uh, Milt Hinton and uh, and Paul Gunther from Kansas City, and you know, Jay was that was Jay's buddy that he used on drums for years and years, man. So Jay always he, his roots were really firmly here in KC. You know, he, he he lived here his whole life. So you had, you spent time with Ida McBeth. You got around quite a bit. Kind of lay out a little bit of a timeline and who were some seminal acts along with Jay that really helped you develop and become the player that you are today? Well, man, you know, when I played with Rich, you know, it was Rich Hill and the Riffs featuring Ida McBeth. That was the name of the band when I was in it. And I, you know, I had just turned 21. And Rich called me and Sam Johnson to play a couple of gigs with Ida. And we, we just, it just clicked, you know, we just, uh, this was about 1980. And, uh, and all of a sudden we had a gig at uh, this Russian restaurant on Broadway where, uh, it's where the music exchange ended up being the last, last place the record store was, but it was a place called Zhivago's. It was upstairs. <clears throat> and man, we just you know just took off. We had you know really good sound. Uh, 
that gig ended. We played a, uh, uh, there was a gay bar on, uh, about 36th and Broadway that we played at for about, oh, nine weeks or something, you know, a couple of months. And then just, you know, some little things here and there. And, you know, it was just, you know, it was like I had never played in, in a group that, you know, that good. That was just, you know, we sounded real good. And Ida was just, oh, my God, she she was just otherworldly kind of phenomenal. You know, no pretense, no, uh, uh, you know, she was just, everything was just from the heart. You know, she just, she had to do it, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, she was just, so gut level man it was just such a visceral thing for her and and it just touched people and uh and you know i i I, you know after after i played with her for a while i mean you know you could one can take that shit for for uh granted man you know and then every once in a while i'd I'd realize that oh my god i'm standing i'm 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 playing with somebody who's just um you know a freak of nature, man. You know, it's, you know, yeah, you know, really, you know, cause she didn't, she didn't think about it. It just was so natural for her. And, uh, and I'd see the, the response in, from people in, in the, in the audience. And, and, uh, you know, just, she really touched people. And uh, I was really lucky to be a part of that. And that was, you know, that was a real pivotal point for me musically. In retrospect, I God, I wish I I wish I had been, uh, you know, like so many things. I mean, I've got a pretty checkered past. I I'm a you know I'm recovering from a, you know a few things. I mean, I've got substance abuse problems and alcohol. You know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I'm in recovery and have been for a, for a long time. But you know, it was uh, in those days. I was, I was pretty wild, and uh, so if you know, if I had a, I, I wish I'd worked harder, you know, and and taken advantage of of the opportunities that I had, you know, I've blown a lot of stuff, but you know, and and, and also, I've recovered pretty well, <laughs> you know, from time to time, you know, I, um, you know, it could have taken me out, so I'm lucky. You know, I'm I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm still around, and uh, and I've changed my ways. You know, I, I I I continue to change my ways. I'll put it that way. I try to I try to make improvements. You know, and and uh, in those days, it was all just oh, it was just you know, I was just hedonist. You know, it was all uh, you know, I was chasing skirts and trying to feel good. That was about about all I was doing. You know, the one thing about your career being in Kansas City all these years is that, you know, you're a part of a very rich jazz tradition for one of the cradles, one of the cities that's really brought this art form to life. What has that meant for you to be a part of Kansas City and to watch it grow throughout all these decades? Oh, man, it means a lot to me. I, you know, more and more all the time. And I, I look back on those days, you know, at the foundation, I mean, of, of knowing, uh, you know, like there's, here's one, one, you know, like I mentioned Fats Dennis, you know, I mean, these guys are part of history, Herman Walder, 
uh, Booker Washington, uh, you know, Earl Robinson, Arthur Jackson, uh, Ernie Williams, man. You know, I mean, this, you know, and I, I got real close to Ernie. Uh, he he was living in the building next to the foundation, and he was he was the last of the Blue Devils, and he was a, you know, he was a, a really important figure in the Kansas City jazz scene. And I caught Ernie at the end of his life, you know, towards the end of his life, and and uh, and sort of had a unique relationship with him because. You know, I was just so young and dumb and naive and everything, and I, I'd be down there a lot by myself. And Ernie, Ernie, and I just—you know—I didn't have a phone too. Here, here was here's a funny story. And my parents, the only way they knew how to, they could contact me was was by calling the payphone at the foundation. And being, you know, nineteen, twenty years old or whatever I was at that time, you know, I wasn't. Uh, you know, I, I was very remiss about staying in contact with my folks. And so they'd call, and Ernie would answer the phone. And so Ernie Williams and my parents had a, developed a relationship. And then Ernie would just hound me, man. He'd follow me around. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd catch me, and he'd say, You're, you know, call your folks, man. He'd, you know, he'd grab me by the arm, and he'd give me, a you know, a, whatever a payphone cost. And and stand there until I called my parents. <laughs> but he made made like a, he was also a tailor, uh, and he made a you know cover for my amplifier and and uh, a little dolly roller thing for it. And and you know he he did little favors for me like that. He was just he was a sweet old guy, man. And and he was you know he was amazing. Uh, his his history he was. He was from like uh, North Carolina, and I think he was Gala. You know, he was came from the Gala people. Those uh, lived on these islands, and uh, so a lot of people thought Ernie was crazy. But I, I, I have a theory that it was his way of keeping people at a distance. You know, he, he, he'd sort of start speaking Gala, <laughs> and, and that'd make that'd make people leave him alone. <laughs> but. <laughs> But I mean, you know, just just these guys. You know, uh, I met Buster Smith. Uh, you know, who I didn't even I didn't, had no idea the significance of Buster Smith to you know to the uh, development of jazz. But he was an alto sax player who uh, you know was a huge influence on Charlie Parker. And you could find Buster Smith records, you know, and hear him take a take a solo on a blues. And you know, it's like, oh yeah, that's that's like pre-bird, bird. You know, I mean, it's it's amazing, all these connections. Claude Williams, so, you know, I mean, I got to, I played with Claude a lot, and you know, that was a uh, an amazing thing. And Frank Smiths, and you know, just just wonderful people. I'm leaving, you know, I just I've yeah, yeah I've been lucky, man. It's it's really really been good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, and that that definitely comes across. I'm curious, what do you like the best about the Kansas City jazz scene? As we look at 2023 and even through the evolution of you being here, what has always been endearing that you've loved the most about the Kansas City jazz scene? Uh, you know, there's there's um uh, 
this is a, a, a an easy place to live. And there's quite a bit of work, and the work re- really generally pays pretty good compared to other places. Uh, you know, you 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 can actually get you know you you can actually kind of make a living here. The edge is pretty wide. I mean, listen, I've I've been homeless here. I mean, literally homeless here. Um, and that was because of my you know of my decisions. That was that was my fault. Um, I take full responsibility for that. But the the you know so the I lived on the edge. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And. Uh, I was able to walk around pretty fairly comfortably, you know, as opposed to, you know, b- being like uh, on the edge in, say, New York City or Paris or something like that. Uh, you know, it's it's a pretty forgiving city, <laughs> which that means a lot. To, that means a lot to me because <laughs> I have I've got a lot I've I've uh, asked to be forgiven for. <laughs> And, you know, so, so far, so good. I mean, the fact that I'm working and, uh, you know, have good relationships with people and have lots of friends and, and you know, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I love this place. Uh, I, so, have, I, I, I have no more delusions of, you know, great fame and fortune. You know, I'm, I'm sort of on the... Uh, you know, I'm sort of, I've got, I'm closer to the end than I am the beginning, and and uh, and the fact that I'm, I can work and enjoy myself, and you know, love life, that means a lot. That means more to me than uh, fame and fortune ever did. Ever, you know, than than, it, than the hopes of fame and fortune ever did. So, you know, when you wake up every day and you face your life as a professional musician, what do you like the best about it? I mean, there's so many components that go into it. But what is it that really drives and fuels you? Oh, man. <clears throat> you know, it's... Uh, this is going to sound weird, but, you know, on a good day, it's like a... It's it's a connection to... to um, to something divine. You know, it's it's like it's a way to uh, you know look in the face of God. You know, I I I I feel like music and art and these things are uh, manifestations of a higher power. You know, and the pursuit of that, you know, this this ever elusive sort of thing. It's like. I'm not looking for perfection, but it all, it all, it's all perfection. This, you know, the whole universe is, it's just the way it's supposed to be. And, and, and if I, you know, if I go through the process of playing every day and, you know, occasionally, man, you know, when, if, if I'm in a sort of a state of prayer, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, my you know, everything's lined up right. I I can actually feel like I'm a channel for something much greater than myself. Boy, that sounded that's a there's a lofty bunch of shit there. But I, you know, I mean that's how I, that's how I feel about it. You know, I'm always you know 
there's this search for meaning to life, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I mean, that's, that's, that's what it's all about to me. I, uh, I, I never really wanted to work at a bunch of shit that I don't enjoy. You know, I don't, I don't want to just, uh, just for the sake of, of money, you know, just, just doing anything for money. Um, I always felt like I, you know, You know, I mean, you've got to do what you've got to do. I mean, everyone has to do that, you know, and work itself is a sacrament. And that's something that's taken me a long time to realize that one has to work. One has to work. But I I, I kind of had my, that Maslow's uh, triangle, you know, the pyramid. I always had it inverted, you know, it was like fulfillment came first. <laughs> but... Uh, but I, you know, I've changed my tune a lot too. I mean, you know, the, I mean, the your basic, you know, needs. I mean, you know, there are priorities. You know, you got to feed yourself, you got to clothe yourself, and your and the, you know, and your people. You know, your tribe, and uh, that's that's very, you know, that's the most important thing. But I've managed to be able to to do that, doing what I love. And you know, somebody said, if you love what you do, you know, it it ceases to be work. It's just what you do, you know. And that's how I look at music. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. So, you know, but it right could be now, any it could be it could be anything. It could be plumbing or, you know, auto mechanics too, you know. I mean, if if you know, it one can learn to love what they do. Uh if 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 you, you know, and it's got to be something worthy, you know. I mean, I wouldn't want to be uh, you know, I couldn't be like a uh, an arms dealer because I don't you know, I don't approve of that. That goes against my nature. Uh, you know, you know, the, you know. So if I if I made money doing something that I that I couldn't accept on a moral or ethical, you know, standpoint, I wouldn't wouldn't be proud of myself. Yeah, no, yeah. I dig it. I dig it. So yeah. right now, after all these years of being here, what is your take, especially coming out of the pandemic and everything we've lived through? What is your take on the Kansas City jazz scene right now in 2023? And you being a part of that tapestry, how do you feel about it? Oh, it's it's healthy, you know, real healthy. I mean, there are, you know, just scads of really, really good young players running around, and uh, and you know, they're the they're the scene now. I mean, I'm. I'm working at a, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I love my job. I'm working at a cabaret place downtown, the Quality Hill Playhouse, and, and I just love it. And it's perfect for me at this point. And, you know, um, you know, I, I love the music. I love musical theater and stuff like that. But also because I'm, because of my age and, and, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I'm an old guy. I'm not the best player in the world. Um, uh, I'm not on the scene. I'm kind of, you know, and, and these young guys are the ones that are doing, you know, getting the club work. The, they're working the nightclubs and the, and that's the way it's supposed to be, man. You know, that, uh, is, uh, what was it? Phil Wood said once that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's Greek, you know, the, the son kills the father, you know, it's like Greek tragedy. And, um, uh, you know, and I love these guys and I play with a lot of them, you know, and, and it keeps me young. Uh, and there's work, and they're man. These 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 kids are you know I call them kids, but they're they're grown men and women. Uh, 
and uh man they're they're taking care of business uh the uh the scene has changed and that's how it's supposed to be i mean the uh, you know music is changing and always evolving and jazz is and music is supposed to be a living breathing thing and and uh, I, you know, I've, bec- I've become more nostalgic in my old age, and, and you know, and, and I'm fine with that. I, I like thinking about the good old days, and I like, you know, doesn't uh, diminish my appreciation of, of the present, you know, and uh, or my, um, you know, uh, hope for the future. You know, I mean, the world's. Um, in many ways is really, really messed up, but it's a kind of always been that way. I hope we can pull out of it. The stakes seem to be higher now, uh, you know, just because everything we're all, you know, there's just so many of us, you know, and there's, a, there's this kind of a saturation point that, that uh, happens, but I hope we can pull out of it. I hope humanity has it can collectively get together and, uh, you know, make things better. Yeah. But uh me as well. You know, yeah. Yeah, I mean yeah, I mean it's just, you know, it's sometimes it's scary, but you know, it's that's that's the most primal emotion we have. That's the uh what was that movie uh, uh with William Hurt uh, Altered States. You know, where he goes yeah. deep into this primal thing and and, he, and at one point he said that's the that's the first thing, you know, uh Creatures feel is is terror, <laughs> utter terror. Yeah. Just at, at being alive. That's why you scream coming out of the womb. <laughs> yep. The truth certainly is. Let me ask you this. If you, uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, but it's all a miracle, man. You know, I mean, it's like you know, fear doesn't go away, but it can be dealt with. You know, it's uh, it, it's it's it it can be a motivator. You know, it's just uh, you know, it, it all depends on your response, and you you know, we can you, one can train oneself to to uh, respond better to to anything. So, for sure. So let me ask you this: If you could get into a time machine and go back in time and see one jazz show, where are you going? Who are you going to see? Oh wow, man. Oh, that'd be that'd be real hard to hard to choose. I I'm kind of a you know the the whole bebop thing um when but you know I I couldn't you know, like pinpoint one time, one date though. Uh you know, I look at like the swing era and the bebop era as being, you know, there was a sort of a transitional thing between those two but but I, I i guess you know that that period with like lester young and was uh sort of passing the torch to bird and those guys that seems like a fascinating time uh when they were you know you know right around the all well i mean you know this would have been right around the war right around world war ii era you know the thirties and forties. And I'm kind of, because of my father's experiences as a, you know, he was a infantry, you know, combat veteran. 
of World War II, I'm sort of, uh, you know, uh, no, it's a bit of a, you know, kind of a preoccupation. I, I read about th- that period of time, you know, and it's a fascinating, scary period of time that, you know, uh, that I heard about all my life because of my, my dad. And, you know, I think about the, the music that was happening then and the art that was going on, you know, with the, you know, Picasso and the, you know, that, that famous painting of, you know, Spain of, um, you know, the town that was devastated. And so I, you know, I, I may be the thirties and the forties, although see, see, I mean, I say that from a distance because I know that was a very difficult, difficult time. And it was challenging for the for the world. It was you know when it was uh, him, but you, they just you just had to get through it. But the the stuff that came out of that period, I mean, in films and music and art and all the you know, was just just amazing. You know, all of the people that that uh, um, the refugees who had to come go different places to, you know, to stay safe and to stay alive. I mean, you know, all those guys ended up in Hollywood, you know, uh, Billy Wilder and Eric Korngold and, you know, all these guys, you know, that were, uh, it was just, uh, it's a fascinating time for, uh, to me. So maybe that would be it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I dig it. Yeah. So Brian, everyone out there has a perception of you, family, friends, fans, but ultimately you run the show. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? Oh, man. My perception of me. God, it's changed a lot over the years. I, uh... You know, having a a daughter, I I, I got, uh... I, I thought I was going to be a you know, just an old bachelor, you know, for a long time. And then about, you know, 18 years ago, I, uh, I ended up with a stepdaughter. She, you know, she wasn't that, what hadn't quite turned three yet. You know, and, uh, and man, it, that was a, a crisis for me because suddenly I, you know, I, I, I was, uh, in a role that I'd never thought I would be in, you know, having to act like a, like a grown up. And uh, when I took that job, when I finally surrendered to to that job, that changed changed me a lot. It was a slow change, you know. I mean, it came about gradually, and, and a lot of stumbles and, and mistakes, and uh, you know, uh, a lot of. <laughs> I had to learn to be humble, you know. I mean, it's like children, uh, they'll they'll, uh, they'll whittle your ego down to size. But that that was probably the, the that's been the uh, the most significant thing that I've you know that's that's the most important thing I've ever done and continue to do. And it it put my put music in my career and me and you know all of that stuff in perspective that I, you know, it's not just about me, you know, 
my life is not just about me. And that is a perception that that I you know I've I'm, I've been sculpting of myself. I want to be something I had never been before I became a father. You know, it was just you know I'm I'm suddenly I I uh, you know that that you know basically you know I'm a very selfish self serving guy by nature. You know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty arrogant. I, I uh, you know, I've got a lot, a whole lot of uh, characteristics that uh, uh, I need to keep on, you know, on in their cubby holes. You know, I need to put them in in the, on their shelves and keep them there. You know, and uh, not act on those things. I've I've had to learn to act on on other, uh, um, you know, be motivated by other things. And uh, and that's 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 been a blessing. It's you know so that's that's changed me a lot you know and 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 it's changed my music I think too you know it's um, it's I've I've had I've learned to kind of you know separate the art from the craft. There are times where I just have to go do my job, you know I just have to do the job, get get it done, you know and and complete the task. And then, you know, then on to the next thing. And that's kind of the way life is, isn't it? It certainly is. Yeah. So speaking of getting the job done, talk to me a little bit about where you're doing your gigs live these days. Anything about recordings, anything pertaining to your world. Where can people go or what should they know? Sure. I, you know, I'll just go go down the list. Uh, I, I'm playing at uh, quality. I mean, at uh well, I'll, I'll get get to that because that's coming up. But tomorrow I'm playing at Chaz at the Raphael with Rod Fleeman and I do a duo at, at there. We've been doing it, uh, playing a couple of times a month there for for quite some time, and uh, we're we're playing there tomorrow. Uh, and then Friday, I'm playing with the singer Lauren Bradshaw at uh, the Market. Uh, in, I mean the uh, the market in Meadowbrook. Uh, hold on, just a second. I'm almost finished. All right, thanks. The market in Meadowbrook, uh, the owned by the same guy that has the French market, and then um, oh, I've got some other stuff coming up. That you know, the re- remainder of the month I can't remember, but it's things like that. But then in September, I'm playing uh, the first week of September. I'm at uh, the Quality Hill Playhouse, and we're doing a benefit for the Quality Hill Playhouse. Uh, it's the first week in September. Uh, I've got some other, you know, just odds and ends, you know, for the remainder of September. October, I've got a month-long show at Quality Hill Playhouse. November, the first two weeks, I'm playing um, in the uh, – uh, uh, Spinning Tree Theater production of a, uh, a musical called uh, Ride the Cyclone for two weeks. Uh, November, the remainder of November and December usually take care of themselves. And then January, I start, you know, we start the whole season for Quality Hill Playhouse, and that's going to be like four shows between uh, January and July. Uh, 
you know, somewhere in there. So I'm, you know, I've, I've gotten busy again <laughs> after three years of daily panic. Uh, you know, suddenly, suddenly I, you know, I, I kind of relax a little bit. So that's a good thing. I, and I know yeah. from my perspective, you know, watching and covering the scene, it's, you know, it's really good to just see everybody out there and that everybody's appreciating it and getting into it. So with that being said, thank you so much for taking time out. I'm glad we got a chance to hook up. I, I love your story. You're such a staple. You've been a staple for such a long time in this uh, in this town. I'm so glad that we had the chance to talk and, and get the story out there. Man, it's been a good time. I've had a, had a real good time. This this has been a wonderful interview, man. I, I, I I'm flattered that you you called me. I don't. Sometimes I feel kind of old and in the way, you know. It's like nobody really cares. <laughs> but but uh, you know, I mean, it's just it's, that's uh, you know, I don't need that much attention. But it's nice nice to get nice to get noticed like this. Absolutely. And, and, Man, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview. We give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Brian for his time, energy, and stories. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.